Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Phil Cummins, a partner at Innovative Dining Group, to discuss the pandemic's effects on restaurants, ghost kitchens, and on-demand delivery. Phil offers his advice around how restaurants can build brand equity during this time and why he believes those that do will emerge even stronger. Enjoy the episode. Phil, thank you for joining. Um, thank you for asking me. Yeah. So, Phil, can you, can you just give everyone a bit of background on yourself and Innovative Dining Group? Sure. Innovative Dining Group is uh, founded by myself and a couple of partners 22 years ago. Um, we are both most known for the Sushi Roku um, and Katana in the Japanese market space and the Boa brand in the steakhouse space. We were definitely one of the first in creating the uh, fine dining experiential type of restaurants. And as an example for Boa, when we were started, it was pretty much just Ruth Chris, the Palm Morton's, basically what we called our parents or our grandparents' steakhouses. What year was and it started, I, Phil? On uh, 1996. Wow. And we did our first Sushi Roku for $500,000. And basically, you know, I, I went and looked at Nobu and said, let's do something a little cooler and hipper than Nobu was doing when he actually really just had Matsuhisa in LA and Nobu in New York. And, and so, and then he saw what we did and took, you know, he, he started to do the same, not do the same thing. We both did the same thing, but he saw what I was doing and go, wow, this is, this is actually the, the where things are going a little more experiential. Wow. And so was it, so, was it really one of the first like, um, kind of pioneering branded fine dining concepts? Uh, I think so. I, 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 Definitely, there were a few people around the country and around the world that I, you know, was copying. I can't say I was the first, but I was definitely one of the, the leaders in, in the area, yes. Mm-hmm. Um, there was actually, um, you might remember, there was a steakhouse called Dylan Steakhouse in New York City that was probably okay. the first, and it was my prototype. I walked okay. in there in New York, and I said, this is what the steakhouse of the future is going to look like. Wow. And then I, I took it and put our own spit on it. And so, but I want to hear kind of obviously how the COVID crisis has affected um, your industry and your business in particular, but even before that, but you yeah. have been, you've talked a lot about how just systemically the restaurant industry was changing as a function of just on-demand delivery. And so like kind of, if you were to look back at like, what were the major issues you were thinking through in like December, 2019? And it feels like a year ago, but what were those issues? <laughs> It feels more like a decade ago right now. Yeah. Um, so, especially in the Los Angeles or major metropolitan markets, um, we were facing a bunch of different issues. Uh, first of all, you know, the wage increases and in the cost of minimum wage were causing dramatic impacts mm-hmm. upon every restaurant tours margins. And, you know, we were healthier than most and our margins were being cut by 40%. And we just couldn't increase prices quick enough. Then you add on to that, as, the, um, as retail was starting to disappear, landlords were filling storefronts with restaurants. 
So the standard or the normal supply demand equation was already out of whack. And then you add, and I kind of think the timing of the two occurred at a, a kind of a, or, or in it in together had a massive effect. You had these delivery platforms, third-party delivery platforms, that hit at kind of the same time as like the Netflix and the Hulus and the Amazons of the world. So not only could people stay home and eat, but they also now had a lot more entertainment to stream and binge watch. And I actually think if you look at the two, it actually changed patterns dramatically. And then lastly is historically we have, you know, I'm an older, an older guy who have dealt with uh, um, my generation and virtually every generation up to now has been very loyal to their brands. And, you know, they are creatures of habit and, you know, they just have their 10 restaurants that are in their rotation. The millennials are very, very different. They have zero brand loyalty and that actually rather go to something new then go to something that they know is a good value. So that was also a fight that we were, we were looking at as well, just a change in, in how people think. Um, it's going to be interesting to see if that same type of thing um, exists going forward, especially with that topic that I just talked about, because I think people are realizing that we need to be loyal to those brands that we love if we want them to survive. Right. So that is going to be an interesting this thing to see if it creates a, a different mentality in the in the millennials and i'm curious if like when you when you first in, encountered kind of the on-demand delivery services in some ways from what i understand they were operating rogue right they weren't working necessarily with the restaurants they would just show up and get takeout and you could presume the orders were additive and i think about um what happened in the hotel industry when the otas came along like mm -hmm. initially the otas the price lines the expedias came along and the hotels were like oh this is great it's a way of filling yeah additional rooms, additional inventory, it's additive to what we do. Yeah. But then that was kind of over the late 90s, early 2000s, and then it actually started to replace the core customers of Hilton and Marriott and some of these big brands. Yeah. And effectively the brands were disintermediated from their end customers. Did, did you see that or did you feel that happening um, kind of over the last few years that it was actually replacing people that otherwise would have gone to the restaurant? Um. We really don't know, uh, to be honest with you. And uh, I've never seen really good data that showed one way or another, especially um, I'm, in the, I'm in a unique, not, maybe not unique, but I'm not only fine sit down, fine dining, but $50 a head or more in general. So at least for my area of the market, I think it was subtractive. Um, I don't think that it was additive in any way, shape or form. Uh, but also for someone who plays in my space, it was a, a net subtract, especially definitely in our margins, because people are buying a steak and the center of the plate protein, which is our highest cost to get sold. And I'm not getting the alcohol sale or I wasn't getting the dessert sale or right. the end of the after dinner drink or the coffee sale, which is everyone that's knows. That's where, my, that's where my biggest margin is. So I was providing the we were we are selling and we're selling the most expensive product that we have or the highest cost of good item that we have and you know the those third party players are taking 18 to 25 percent and then at the end of the day you know the customer is getting a good experience but not the same experience but it's an area where we felt we always had to play 
Because if we didn't, and someone tried a steak from someone else or sushi from someone else, we might actually lose him as an in-store guest in the future because they've all maybe found someone who now they could replace us when they got, decide to go to an in-store dine. Wow. And so it, it really didn't matter to us. It was an area that we had to play as a defensive play. And, and kind of, I'm curious as to how this crisis has, has accelerated some of those transitions for the, the restaurant industry. But maybe before that, just what has been the effect kind of on your business, like over the last 60 days? Um, uh, not just economically, well, just, just even like structurally. Structurally things of, I mean, it's insane, as you can imagine. I'm sure like you, I haven't uh, had a day off since mid-March, <laughs> I want to say, maybe early March. Um, it, it's been tough because it's, uh, you know, we were forced to shut down restaurants, basically, um, at almost a moment's notice. Uh, we had to determine very quickly our HR department is small and not designed to figure out with Warren Acts and this act and this rule and that rule, how do you let go or furlough a thousand of a thousand fifty employees? And then what's the right thing to do? And how much cash do you have to pay for those? Because you know the restaurant business, we do like most businesses, but you know we receive our money today from our customers. We don't pay our payroll for two weeks, and we don't pay our cost of goods sold for thirty days. So unlike most businesses, you know we're we're the reverse end of the cash flow perspective, uh, you know, and, uh, and most of us, you know, I, I've got pretty hefty working capital, but not for anticipated for three, four months worth of a hundred percent shutdown. So that was the first ball is remember calling my CFO and uh, literally on a Sunday night said, shut down our bank accounts, literally lock them down. And I don't care who every single payable done. And then we'll figure this out in a week or two, but we've got to protect and preserve cash. Um, like the big brands took down the revolvers and did pretty much the same thing. Uh, laying off people is really tough. My team works really, really hard for me and is incredibly loyal and I want to be loyal to them. But then you also think about whether this lasts 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, you want to have the team who's available when you do or have the capability of reopening. Because they have the skills and the competence and the familiarity. I couldn't open up a bow or a sushi roku if I don't have my general managers, I don't have my chefs, if I don't have a lot of my people in place, there's no way to reopen. I know another brand, well-known, who is you know, on CNN or CNBC, who let all 4,700 employees go and kept two employees. How he's going to potentially reopen when he literally might not have a general manager and executive chef at each one of his stores is going to be really difficult. So, going through that balancing act of cash versus being able to uh, to uh, play another day has been a very uh, it's been tough. But and you know we're doing the best we can. Did from your perspective, did you see an increase in the demand for online ordering or kind of through Uber Eats through Postmates? Did you see an increase there? Absolutely. So uh, it's gone up tenfold. Wow. It used to be, you know, for us, I'll give you an example. Uh, One of our Boa Boa Steakhouses normally had a $110 check average. Uh, You know, a $12 million store, uh, you know, is now down by 
4%, but that 6%, 1% used to be to delivery and takeout. It's now 6%. So, you know, I'm seeing days that used to be $400,000 nights that are now $40,000 nights in my company. And I'm like, hey, that's great, but we've had to make lots and lots of moves in order to get there. Um, completely reworked it in its, uh, our systems where streamlined menus, figuring out the 80-20 and making sure that, you know, we're only providing those products that people have been the staple for them. Uh, and then doing like, we just launched an online market. So besides buying BOA, you can do BOA raw. So you can also get your raw steak or beef from us. You can also now get uh, basically grocery items. So you can get your produce and your eggs and your dairy from us. We have the liquor laws have been changed and you can now buy wine and beer and even mixed drinks from us. So we're selling prepackaged margaritas and martinis and things like that. But it's been a tremendous, I mean, my team has worked effortlessly, amazingly, and they've done a great job. But it's a daily thing of how do we optimize revenue or maximize revenue given what people are going through and uh it's uh, it's unique for us and there's a lot of moving parts but i think our team has done really well but at the end of the day people have also you know they are longing for great food so passover and easter you know have come and gone and we did specials for dinner for four for for those and the we sold out on both of them and people then called me or texted me or through social and thanked me genuinely. It's like, that was so nice to have a great feeling like home cooked meal. It's the first time we've done it in, in a long time. And so there's people, you're, people who can, I think we're building real brand equity. I mean, providing a service to our, our guests, but I'm also hopefully building brand equity. And I think great restaurant companies will come out of this look, you know, with stronger equity than they had before and stronger brand loyalty. And do you, do you feel like just looking at the like, um, on-demand delivery, do you feel like it almost accelerated? Um, like we are today where we would have been two, three years out from a volume perspective. And does that in turn accelerate how you're thinking of positioning IDG for the future? Like, does it really change how you think about the form factor of your business? Abs absolutely. Um, we are, uh, you know, I just got done touring a couple of cloud kitchens. Um, we'll probably be signing leases in the next 24 hours on a couple of those. Um, but on top of that, ab absolutely. We're looking at a couple of our restaurants. Like I've got a, a restaurant in Newport beach and one in Pasadena. I think that I'll probably be doing, and those are sushi restaurants. I'll be doing boa out of those very, very shortly. Um, and then where I've got talent that might not reopen, we're absolutely looking at, at those type of things. So it's, uh, but it's an ever evolving world too, because I don't really know if this is how long this is going to last. Um, and there's a lot of people who are going to play. I mean, the whole supply demand equation of where we end up in six months from now or a year from now, who knows? I'm just, I'm right now, I am thinking long-term. I've got a plan ahead team, but I'm still playing, you know, um, the short game at this point in time. Yeah. How do you think, I'm, I'm curious, this is something I was um, talking to one of the companies actually in the cloud's kitchen space about is like, you know, and traditionally you think of if, if you kind of use a standardized business model for the restaurant industry, there's brand, right? There's kind of the, the brand of the restaurant, 
the store yeah. where you're actually buying and consuming the product, and then the factory, the making of it. And yep. you know, traditionally, they were all one. The brand, you walked into a, a BOA, you ate there, and it was actually made there. But it almost feels like what's happened with uh, online ordering is that you've abstracted the three things, meaning you can actually make the food hypothetically anywhere as long as you can get it to the, the customer within a reasonable time frame. Um, the, the store is effectively now, in some cases, the apps, right? And it can be yeah. totally abstracted. Like there are, there, I know that there's places I've ordered from on Uber Eats that do not have physical stores. They're, they're right. completely um, virtual and there's no storefront. And then brand, it seems like is the persistent thing. And you were just talking about that, that having the, the, the BOA brand and kind of the quality that conveys and, and the, the meaning of that for customers that are familiar with eating in your restaurants, that's persistent. How do you think about that playing out like five years into the future? Um, like, what do you think, just take fine dining, obviously, like, what do you think fine dining looks like five years out from now? Oh man. Now my crystal ball is basically a bowling ball. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big black bowling ball. So I don't know if I've got a lot of clarity. I might have some thoughts on it, but, uh, it's nothing more than conjecture. Um, I think that, uh, Five years from now, I honestly don't think like someone like ourselves is going to look that much different. Right. Um, I really don't. But as you pointed out, we used to be two things. We were a factory in the kitchen that made a specific product at a specific quality level at a specific value proposition price point. And then we were a front of the house, which is a for lack of a better term, kind of an entertainment venue. Mm-hmm. And obviously we were both. And there's some restaurants that um, are incredibly, and every restaurant found their own level of balance of this, of um, are they about the entertainment value at the front of the house and not really caring and the food was good enough? Or were they really about phenomenal quality food and the front of the house was, again, good enough? or what the balance is, that front of the house equation or that entertainment value is completely gone now, at least at this point in time. And it's only about the quality of your food for the value. There's also, yes, we're all working on brand new um, packaging because now that entertainment value or the brand value is not just the quality of the food, but does it come in a pretty box, Right. you know? Does it, is the packaging good? And we have gone to incredibly high quality packaging uh, and stuff like that. And I've got product hopefully being, you know, shipped out of Spain in the next week or two to up that ante. But we really, that's been completely um, removed, you know, uh, uh, bifurcated that it used to be together. And then the whole third party delivery is something that I can't really control at all. So it's just hopefully going with the best player and just doing what I can, which is making sure that when it hopefully gets to the the customer, that I've got the best packaging and the best product at my price point that I can possibly be so that I'm the winner in that delivery game when some random person is for Postmates, Uber, whoever, you know, presenting, delivering that product. Now, we are absolutely looking at coming up with brand new 
concepts. Like and, brands? Uh, like restaurant uh, brands? So we are looking at coming up with brand new restaurant brands for sure. Um, because if we are going to go to a virtual of a more virtual or delivery world, I want to make sure that I can do a Boa grill for other marketplaces that has, since I can't provide or those customer isn't going to want to or pay for or able to come to with a big fancy showy, you know, front of the house that I build, I'm going to be look at a way to do almost the same value at a lower price point by using other product as an example. Up to now, we buy the best product we can possibly buy because of the markets I work in, we, we supply to. Um, and we're gonna do the same in sushi as well. So yeah, we've got, uh, in the next two to three months, we'll probably be launching a couple brands. I mean, I think you probably have been to our Be Grill by Boa Steakhouse at the United Airlines terminal at LAX. Yeah. Now, that's an example. Does that, go ver- does that become a cloud kitchen or a virtual kitchen? that's only available to the third, you know, through the third party delivery services. Most likely, most likely. And how do you think about like location, right? Like in obviously retail is changing so dramatically. And I feel like the axiom that guided every restaurateur, every retailer, even every landlord in how to price the value of space was location, 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 right? Like how attractive is the, addressable market. If you're to basically draw a perimeter around a restaurant and say, this is roughly the addressable market that defines sales and that defines value. But in an on-demand world, location becomes more amorphous, meaning you could hide like your brand, Boa's brand is known throughout Southern California and throughout the U S. And do you think that, do you think that the, the growth of on-demand services allow you to accelerate like regionally and even nationally at a, at a pace that you wouldn't have been possible with the traditional brick and mortar store by store footprint growth? Um, I think it might. And you hear a hesitancy in my voice. The reason that I, I'm hesitant is if you look at the pizza war or the burger wars, the QSR burger wars that occurred eight or 10 years ago now, I don't even know about, what, sorry, what were the burger wars? So, um, you know, Umami Burger versus Shake Shack versus whatever. Every city had their own or 800 Degrees versus Blaze versus uh, Pizza Rev. Every city had their own local burger chain that was going to expand locally and then go nationally. What happened, though, is... For 90% of these players, not all of them, obviously Shake Shack maybe won or came out looking great, but for most of those players, by the time they looked from going to LA to Vegas, the Vegas market already had its hometown favorite. Mm. And I think that is the, um, unless someone can grow and grow to scale very, very quickly, uh, I think that there are going to be I think that I might run in because I'm sure like if I went to Denver, there's probably an Aboa equivalent that's doing the same thing and thinking the same way and making the same moves that I'm making here in Los Angeles. And so I'm going to be going up a hometown favorite who's already got a great brand. So I don't know that that's why I'm hesitant of whether this scales much out from a regional perspective, unless unless you've got massive capital and massive capabilities. And, and I'm curious, like one of the 
one of the corollaries I think about in in food now with the you know the advent of the DoorDashes and the Postmates and the Uber Eats is if you if you um, conceptualize them as platforms, right? Distribution engines yep. into the customer. They're a bit like, for example, Netflix or a sure. bit like Amazon. And I think about the power that gives them in controlling um, consumer preferences and consumer demand. So like a, a good example, um, who knew they wanted to watch a documentary about uh, captive big cats and tigers, right? No one did. Netflix, right. Netflix decided it. And now it is a thing. It is a social phenomenon. It is memes. It is a cultural phenomenon. And right. that was, it was invented, like both the creation of the content and the dissemination of it, it was controlled by, by Netflix. Do you think that there's almost a power that, you know, an Uber Eats or a Postmates or a DoorDash could have in saying, we are going to play kingmaker for selected brands. We are actually going to control the content. So whether it's Five Guys or whether it's Umami Burger or whether it's Boa, with, with the right distribution to customers, it could be the first thing you see on your homepage. So when you search for steak, Boa wins, and it wins in every market. Um, yep. Do you see that dynamic playing out? It's all right. It is playing out. I mean, they haven't uh, – I think they're in their own war amongst themselves right now, as we know. Um, I actually thought that at the end of the day, Amazon was going to win that war. Uh, especially when in they the in the food space, Phil. You thought in the food? Well, no, in the delivery space. I thought, especially when they had the ability, or when they they bought Whole Foods, they had the ability through every price point that they can provide at the distribution network that they had in the kitchens that they basically purchased. They could have made, been the kingmaker amongst themselves, and they didn't seemingly take advantage of it. Maybe. Um, maybe basis is going to do that now after he hears our conversation, but I, I think he's smart, much smarter than me and has, has figured this out. But, um, right now, just like with, you know, AdWords searches and everything else, we're partially paying absolutely for position mm -hmm. and it's also our scores and how well we deliver, but it's a supply demand equation as well. I mean, you know, the delivery is based upon a 15 minute drive time. Yeah. And so, you know, they're all determining, you know, who they're putting up, not just based upon the quality and who's paying for to be at a certain place in their lineup or on their page, but also upon, I think, and you would know better than me, probably optimizing their drivers to keep them hopefully to the shortest drive time available. So they're not showing, you know, in where I live, they're not showing a Mastro's because the drive time would be too long where Bo is 10 minutes from my house, one yeah. of them in. So. I, so I think that that I, you would know better than me, but I think that is probably a more overriding issue for them to make sure that their delivery costs stay low. Yeah. And I, and I think about like Amazon, right? Like when you think about what Amazon represents in the product space, Amazon mm -hmm. is not a place that brands go to thrive, right? Correct. <laughs> I, I think many people have said Amazon is a place where brands go to die. Um, Correct. And like I, I think of Nike, for example, right? Nike took a very long time to formally work with Amazon and partially because Nike's this brand that, you know, has, has invested so much in its brands. Its stores are these immersive experience in the Nike Absolutely. brand. And when they put their products on Amazon, uh, a sneaker, a shoe, whatever, it's just treated like a product. And there's Reeboks and there's Adidas shoes right next to it. And there's Amazon yep. Basics, you know, T-shirts right next to it. So you've, you've kind of 
reduce the value of brand. And, and I wonder whether you see in the, in the food space almost that same um, like bifurcation of the industry where at the very basic level, you can envision like an Amazon basics. If I just want French fries or I just want a piece of grilled chicken, I don't care where it comes from. It can come from Uber Eats basics or DoorDash basics. But if I want an experience, as you were saying, yeah. I want my Easter dinner. Um, I, I, I want a branded experience. I want something that is as immersive as I can get while still being delivered. Yeah. It, it almost seems like you could see that in the space, just like commodity products and commodity foods first branded experiential um, high price point foods. Ab absolutely. And when we see that, companies like mine and a lot of, I mean, not only mine, but we've seen, yeah, Amazon is, has the ability to destroy entire industries if they want. Yeah. Right. And they could, if they decide to take that tact, um, because honestly, they have every ability to buy the same product that I buy and sell it at a much lower price point than I possibly can. Yeah. So if, if they decide to take that tact, um, it's going to be a scary day for virtually any restaurant brand, even who they could copy a Wendy's hamburger tomorrow right. and come up with their own comp competition. And we know that they could do it at zero profit to a negative profit and wipe out and win the burger war if they yeah. so choose. And if they've especially if they've got a long game in mind, which they do. Yeah. And it's, 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 it's almost like that's where the, the analogy to content kind of breaks down, right? Like if you're deciding between HBO and Amazon and Netflix, they're, you know, like friends, I think of the show, you know, the, the franchise friends, like wherever that is, wherever that's available, people are going to watch it and you can't recreate yeah. friends. People want to watch that sitcom and they're going to want to see old episodes. So if you have that, it's a draw for all your other kinds of content. And Absolutely. it could all, you can almost envision this as like being a, like a great divide, a great uh, separation as a moment in time between the brands that are durable, the brands that have true consumer equity. Uh, like they have goodwill, they have an intimacy, they have a, just a resilience in the consumer's mind and those that are weak, those that are really commodities. Um, and it almost seems like that would favor high end, right? That would favor the Boas and the Nobus that you associate with quality. That's, I, uh, I would agree with you on that. I am, and uh, maybe because I play in the space, I'm a little more optimistic about our area of the restaurant industry yeah. and some of the other areas. Right. Um, just because we do, I mean, you know, no one's gonna, I'm not trying to equate myself, but no one's replacing uh, Tom Ford or Gucci or Hermes or, you know, or Louis Vuitton, right? Yeah. They, those will always exist and, and Amazon can never play in that space. Yeah. Um, but they can play in virtually other space. So I think that there will always be the high end for sure. I think every step of the way that you go down, unless you were truly like, if you are, yes, I mean, Dunkin' Donuts, you know, or something like that, certain donut chains, just everyone knows exactly what that product tastes like. And they want exactly that. Yeah. But if you're anything less than those super powerful world-class brands 
mm-hmm. um, that are iconic with their logos and everything else, um, I'm, I would be very scared. Yeah. Last question. I'm just, cause I, I know that you've, uh, store formats all over. And yeah. when I think about, um, like, like a mall, right. A traditional mall, which is arguably the most, the most existentially threatened industry or, or business model, yeah. um, as a result of this, both because there was this, um, kind of preceding crisis around just e-commerce taking market share from offline retail. But what I noticed in malls over the last like five years is that while the inline stores were thinning out, the food courts were growing. And you made this comment about the, there's just an oversupply of, of new brands, mm-hmm. but the food courts were always filled, right? So even, yeah. if, even if the inline stores weren't, the food courts were the draw. Do you think that, like the the concept of food courts continues as one, a driver for malls, but even a a concept in its own right, like Italy, right? In the Century City Mall. Do you think that persists? Um, It depends what the malls look like in three or four years. (laughs) And what I mean by that is, I don't think people are going to, I don't think people are going to want to go to food courts if they're walking by 20 or 30% boarded up storefronts. Right. And if you look a lot of the time, those food courts are in the middle of the mall. So you can't, you know, on the third floor. So that's going to be a major issue. Um, I also think that the standalone food court uh, is actually a, much better in the future where there's going to be a lot of empty warehouses or storefronts of 20, 30, 40,000 square feet that will be just its own standalone food court, not part of a mall, um, potentially. Uh, I know, I just think the whole dynamics of what is a good restaurant space is going to potentially change dramatically. Uh, You know, I've got a, a store at Forum Shops at Caesars Palace, you know, we're on the third level of that mall. We're a big draw. Uh, what does that look like in the next you know, year uh, as people come to, back to Las Vegas? I just don't know. Yeah. I know I have a really good partner in Simon Properties and we're gonna work together to figure it out. But it's, I, think that, uh, I think there's a lot of uncertainty. It's, it's, uh, um, it also depends upon you know, how much of the Century City Mall of their food court business is based upon their daytime demand from all the office buildings around. It's a good point. Like meaning if daytime demand shifts, you, yeah, there's no, there's no office community to serve. There's no office. And you know, I mean, I, I play in a space where I'm 80 to 90% dinner and only 10 to 20% lunch, but a lot of the QSRs are based upon a 50, 50, you know, day part demand there's a good chance and they picked locations based upon that 50, 50 demand. And if that daytime goes away, that's why, you know, I'm saying my, my, my forward looking uh, thoughts are very convoluted because yeah. there's so many different scenarios to play through. Um, the locations that I had at that I thought were great might not be so great and, and, and vice versa. Yeah. So we're looking at location, location, location and doing SWOT analysis 
and trying to determine, but it's a, it's a pretty fuzzy, uh, it's a pretty fuzzy process at this point in time. You know, one of the things I was thinking is just for a lot of these malls that are really well located. Um, mm-hmm. I, I do think that the, the consumer behavioral shift towards ordering things online is real. And I think it's durable. Oh, yeah. I think we, we've, we've just like accelerated five years in e-commerce adoption in 60 days. Correct. And so when you play that out, that's going to have a dramatic effect, even on the most successful um, shopping centers. But one of the things that I, I, I've been thinking a little bit about is like, take the Century City Mall. Um, yeah. It's true that the apparel and home goods stores as the, the inline space becomes more challenged. Why is Ely limited to only, you know, five, 10% of the mall? Why couldn't the entire mall become like a city square, like a precinct oh, in a city? I think it will. Yeah. I absolutely think it will. And I think that it's the Century City food court effectively. Uh, well, I think that it's a more than that is, I, I mean, I think that the Century City Mall, we both know it very well, is at least in Southern California, probably the best positioned mall because it is it's geographically, ge- well, not just geographically, but the tenant mix that they ended up generating. Italy is and Gelson's are phenomenal resources. They've right. also got Equinox there. They've also got a lot of green open space. So they provide, I mean, I do agree. I, I, you said it perfectly is a mall that can provide grocery, restaurant, retail, gym, dry cleaning, you know, probably nail salon, uh, you know, all the, all the things that you want in one place. I think are going to be in that mall is very, very well suited because they already have a lot of those things. Um, I do believe they're going to become town squares with some retail added to it. And you know, you know, with the, 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 I'm not a mall guy, but you know, then you'll put a uh, office space in what used to be a retail tenant. The rents will go down. And all of a sudden, if I could go to the Century City Mall and that's where my office was and all my needs, and it made my day more efficient, I would absolutely love it. Yeah. And I do believe that that, I, you know, it's going to take a lot of pain and a lot of movement, but I do believe potentially that that's where things go. Well, I mean, what do you, what do you think? You end up uh, in the space a lot more than I do. I mean, I think it, I agree with everything you said. I think that um, it, it, it becomes this, um, it becomes this separator of the the really well located malls and mm-hmm. and uh, shopping centers, but the, it's it's a change in the mix of what you consume there. Meaning, yeah. if you can buy the product online. Um, I think over a long enough time horizon, it goes away from yeah. from some physical selling. I think there is some immersive brand experience that persists. Yeah. So a Nike store or a Disney store that's more than just the products in the store. I think those kind of concepts persist. And then I think absolutely you'll see a, a migration of the things that you can't get online. Like you can't get a haircut online. That's got to happen no. in person. Uh, you can't get a facial. You can't get a massage. You can't get certain health and wellness services. You can't do a workout. So a lot of the. You just, can't get a dog grooming. You can't get, you know, all the things. I mean, think if you're going to, you know, when you, when you go back to move it, you know, back to LA, you know, it's going to be really nice if you can have a dog walking place or somewhere that will take care of your dog when you're at work, right? Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. And I think it beca- and in some ways it then becomes almost like a, a true town square. And I think food right. is a big part of that. I mean, town squares from, you know, the middle ages through today have always been built around food, right? Food is, food's the great congregator. Um, food food in, in a, what, what, as you just described, is essential services that can't be provided online. Exactly. Exactly. Or, or, or delivered to your home yeah. easily and efficiently. And you could envision that, that, that kind of center serving much larger geographies, right? So it feels like in the decades before, it was like you had a shopping center to serve this three-mile radius and then one over here to serve this three-mile radius. But with on-demand, you might just need one truly exceptional one. Um, and so I agree with you. It's almost like the, the, the assets like the Santa Monica Place uh, for West LA, Century City, um, for kind of, you know, the, that corridor between Beverly Hills and, and mm-hmm. Westwood. And then probably only a handful more have a durability because they can aggregate all these essential services, all these immersive experiences, all these things you can't get offline. Correct. And the rest of the time, they just become distribution hubs, right? For everything Correct. else. So. Um, the durability is, is for sure what I think... Uh, I th- some mall owners or in, and developers understand this, and I know for sure some don't. Um, the big driver for my industry, unlike a lot of traditional retail, is we can't, um, and, and it happens all the time when I'm looking at real estate and retail um, leasing agents try to point me in a direction, go, this is going to be great in five years. And I was like, well, that would be true. I'd love to own the real estate, but as a restaurant, I have very, very high fixed dollar labor costs from yeah. day one. I got to make a buck now. I got to be profitable from day one. And that's where, you know, if the, the malls are going to have to, number one, be willing to give very lucrative deals to those restaurants or any of those other service providers, because it's very different than a retail store where they've got their build out costs, they've got utili- their utilities, but then they have two or three hourly employees sitting there. I've got 120. Yeah. And, and how aggressive they are in offering that to you. It almost seems like that should accelerate because in, 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 if that is the new world, um, second place is worth nothing, right? It's, it is a race to create that, that single center of, you know, social and, you know, commercial gravity. And and if you become it, you become it. And if you're second place, uh, it's over, right? You, you yeah. No one, no one remembers who who got the silver medal, right? Exactly. Um, yep. Well, Phil, this has been really interesting. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. Absolutely, thank you. It was a nice uh, mental exercise and a break from my crazy day. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.